Hello and welcome to CineLit. My name is Adam Marsh. Before we kick off our wide-ranging discussion around the work of Italian maestro of horror Dario Argento, I feel I need to explain a few things. Those of you familiar with Dario's work will probably know he established his name making Jolly movies and is probably the director most responsible for defining the key characteristics of this particular subgenre of film. Now myself, Daryl, and our special guest, in our haste and quite frankly giddy excitement, glossed over the fact that many of you out there may not be familiar with this relatively obscure subgenre. So, for the uninitiated, a giallo is a particular brand of murder mystery fiction. The name giallo, Italian for yellow, derives its name from the long-running series of crime mystery novels by Italian publishing giant Mondadori. Notable for their distinctive yellow covers, the book series published novels by leading crime authors like Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, Egg Wallace, Ed McBain, Raymond Chandler and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The term giallo then transfers to film, where filmmakers in the 1960s started making adaptations and new movies inspired by these mystery fictions. The film genre developed its own set of characteristics that include, but are not exclusive to, black glove killers, complicated murder mystery plots, themes of sex, violence, madness and paranoia, as well as the wonderfully lurid titles like Five Dolls for an August Moon, or Death Walks on High Heels, or A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. So, there's a little primer for the uninitiated. And for those of you that already knew all that, well, at least you got to hear my sultry voice for a couple of extra minutes. Now, over to our regular scheduled broadcast. Hello, welcome to CineLit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and I am joined as ever by my uh, CineLit's resident expert, Mr. Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. Great stuff. We're nearing Halloween, so we figure we need to move into the horror genre slightly. So uh, we are going to be looking at the work of one of the maestros of horror, Mr. Dario Argento. And to help us with that task, we have our very special guest, Mr. John Martin here. John is known for co-creating the fanzine Samhain. And also the wonderfully titled Jello Pages. Yes, uh, <laughs> excellent fanzine covering a lot of Italian horror, uh, particularly the Jello movies. Welcome, John. And uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with yourself and Daryl. Great stuff. So we, we, we're going to be talking Dario Argento, uh, filmmaker, uh, well regarded in the horror circles. Uh, and beyond, uh, uh, courtesy of, I guess, a lot of the time brought to recent attention with the uh, remake of Suspiria with Tilda Swinton and uh, Dakota Johnson fairly recently. That brought his name and his uh, kudos to the, to the fore. Did you guys see that? Yes, I, I did. Um, <laughs> there was a nice long pause yeah. there. I'd, I'd actually got high hopes for uh, the Suspiria remake, which was from uh, Luca Guadagnino, mm. and uh, he's, he's made some excellent films in the past. Call Me By Your Name is one that uh, uh, listeners may well have seen here at Quad. Brilliant film from a couple of years ago. And so I thought, yeah, he's, he's sort of ideally placed to make Suspiria because he'll take it seriously. It won't be a sort of horror knockoff. He won't get it wrong. He'll bring a bit of art and intention to it. And in the end, for me, it, it played rather more like a remake of uh, the recent Hereditary than it did a remake of Suspiria. And uh, it just went on too long. It added elements that didn't need to be there. It took elements away that did need to be there. We'll, we're going to talk about Dario's 
film Mother of Tears as we go. And uh, I rewatched Mother of Tears in preparation for today, this week. And I, th- I think Luca has actually studied that film more than he studied Suspiria in making his remake. John, your, your thoughts on it? Well, I have to confess to having been really snotty about this. I haven't seen it. Wow. And perhaps at some point I will. But I had my suspicions. I, the whole thing seemed vaguely pointless. I looked at the length. How long is it? Three and a half bloody hours or something? Yes, it's, I think it's 155 minutes or something. Yes, yeah, so it's like well over two and a half hours. Yeah. And then people whose opinions I respect, such as Daryl, were feeding back to me that it wasn't uh, really worth my while. And um, I'm, I'm afraid I acted upon that or didn't act. I haven't seen it yet. It's, it's one of those interesting things where people people often say, it's like, why do people be making all these rubbish movies from, from the past? And it's like, you should make, remake decent movies, and then everyone kicks off when you make a decent <laughs> movie as well. You, 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 with remakes, you can't win. You're either remaking from a bad source, or if you remake from a good source, people say, well, what's the point in remaking that? You're damned if you do, you're yeah. damned if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, I, I think we should uh, get on to talking about Absolutely. the real deal. And uh, what we ought to do, first of all, is just go through a very quick sort of precy of who Dario is and where he came from in, in the 60s. And uh, as we've got John here, he can sort of fill in the gaps and correct anything we miss out, I'm sure. But... Uh, but Dario started out as a journalist, I believe, for the publication uh, Paese Sera in the 60s, and he was writing film reviews and so on, and then became one of these film critics or people involved on the fringes of the film business, a bit like me and Adam, really, you know. Who, who <laughs> Speak then, for yourself, yeah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> who then get into making movies. You know, we've, we've done sort of one each, and Dario's made a 50-year career out of it, so we can't really compare ourselves with him. I nearly made a Dario Argento documentary, which turned into one of those lost projects, but maybe we'll talk about that later. There's a lot of those about, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Dario was a, a film journalist then, and his review work, whether it was a case of... I can write stuff better than the stuff I'm watching, you know, which is what most critics seem to think. How, how um, well known was he as a critic? Was it? I mean, because obviously you get you, the, the famous example of critics crossing over into cinema is the French New Wave mm. and the Cahiers, the cinema group of Truffaut and Goddard. They were well-respected film critics writing well-respected articles and then went, well, OK, we'll prove it. And they went over and made films and went, see, that's how you make films. Was Dario in that ilk or was he just eking along in the industry trying to work... And was he a well-respected film critic? Was he, was he that kind of level? Or was it just a case of, like, I, I always wanted to make movies and this was just a way of making money? I think even beyond being a film critic, he was perceived as being a sort of countercultural critic. He um, interviewed uh, musicians, rock stars, allegedly, and, and there's a lot of apocryphal stuff in Dario's resume, but allegedly he interviewed the Beatles. I'd personally be very interested to see that stuff anthologised and translated at some point. Uh, I mean, Harvey Fenton's published some great books about him, including his own autobiography. In the autobiography, Argento mentions the the Beatles interviews and so on. I'd like to see that stuff. He was perceived as well as being sort of, uh, of that time, the spirit of 68, that kind of revolution is in the air, you know. Okay. And he's kind of parlayed this into, you know, Dario Argento himself is a cult figure, isn't he? He's sort of this sepulchral-looking, you know eminence of horror he has a shop he's a brand 
He's yeah. turned himself into yeah. a brand. He's got the Profunda Rossa shop in Rome. He, uh, he's got comic books featuring his own exploits, which he's an EC sort of horror host. So, yeah, that's probably taken us a long way away from what you're asking me, actually. But, yeah, so. I mean, all, all that, like, obviously the comparisons to Hitchcock early on in his career don't go away with everything that Dario seems to do. He no, seems to don't. continue to go down that route of like, yeah, well, Hitchcock did it, it's good enough for him. Yeah, everybody has to be the Italian somebody in Italy. Yeah. There was a point where um, his daughter, um, Aja was called the Italian Winona Ryder. <laughs> and just personally, I kind of think that's selling the real Winona Ryder a bit short. But, uh, yeah, the Hitchcock thing with Argento is... Uh, yeah, it was useful on marquees and in ads and things. I think uh, another director with which he has a lot common, in, in common, and they both recently turned 80, Brian De Palma, mm-hmm. he's much more a hardcore student and um, developer of Hitchcock stuff. I think with... Argento, it's kind of a, an interesting marketing tag for a while. Yeah, I can't see Hitchcock making Suspiria or Inferno or anything like that. Although, you know, by the time Hitchcock made Frenzy, Dario had got his first three films out, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And you, you could almost say that Frenzy is the work of the English Argento. Mm. Yes, yes, very good. <laughs> so moving on to those early, early things. Obviously, he, he got his toe in the water. He co-wrote the screenplay for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Yes, he did. Uh, and then in, he... Including, apparently, one of the most famous scenes in that movie. It's often stated. The so. opening sequence, yes, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah that's supposed to be Dario's work, so... Wow. Then got into the director's chair, and I, know we'll, I think we'll let you kick off with this, Adam, because you're probably the biggest fan of... His first movie. Uh, Bird of Bird of Crystal Cream is a big fan of, yes. Um, more of a Profondo Rosso fan myself. That's my, my, my favourite Argento one. But those early um, Jalo movies I find infinitely fascinating and infinitely rewatchable. Yeah. Um, yeah, great movie. I don't know what it is about those movies, but I think it's the way that they're shot. And particularly, and that's one of the comparisons I was looking at his later Jalos. When you look at that, like, it feels like they're much smaller. And those early jellos are all, sh- I don't know how wide they're shot, but they're widescreen. Yeah, they look and like big they movies. Do, yeah. They're intended to be seen in cinemas and, and because, you know, there wasn't really any other way of seeing film at that time, as we know. For newcomers to Argento, you'll, um, if you sort of dig into his career and read some of the books that John's mentioned there from uh, Fab Press on Argento's career, you'll often see these first three movies referred to referred to as the Animal Trilogy because um, they've all got names of creatures in the title. So yeah, which got, in itself spawned a whole cottage industry. Yeah, films. everyone did <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, with but, crazy names. Yeah, like. except except no substitute though. We've we've got Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Cat of Nine Tails. So uh, I think the, the the three films have got sort of similarities with each other, but they're also all very different from each other in ways. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about those three as as a, as a piece. I think it's interesting that, as Adam said, they are so cinematic, and yet Argento did not go to uh, Centro Sperimentale di Cinematografia. Excuse me. Um, he did, you know, come up as a critic, so he was absorbing all this stuff, and he managed to convey that to the screen in his own early movies. His father was a producer, and uh, his father, well, he produced a few movies. Mainly, the family is very well connected in the industry. And when he was making Bird of the Crystal Plumage, the uh, 
Titanus had uh, Goffredo Lombardo was looking at the film and saying, this isn't a giallo, what the hell is this? And they were trying to get him kicked off the movie and replace him with Terence Young, I think. But nowadays, which is so funny, because as you say, Adam, uh, this is, we think, the quintessence of giallo, these films now, but at the time it was perceived as being such a dramatic change and such a... Um, such a transformation of the genre. I think it shifted that form, definitely, because the, the, the giallo was in its early stages anyway, almost in a sort of pupa-like stage, you know. And I don't think it was necessarily connected with, with the horror film as as much as it became. And I think it's Dario who... He wasn't the first person to make a sort of crime thriller horror movie type crossover as he did with these three movies. There had been other examples prior to that in Italy and in Germany, of course, with, with the, the Creamy, which um, sort of rose up at the same time as the, the early uh, Giallo. The Edgar Wallace films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Dario's big contribution to that was to really sort of marry the horror film with the exotic experimental crime thriller and set the course of Italian commercial cinema off on a whole new path. I think that um, Mario Bava invented the giallo, it's generally conceded with the evil eye, a.k.a. the girl who knew too much in 1963, I think. And uh, every time Bava made a giallo, he kind of fiddled with the form and came up with something new. But there was a tendency in the late 60s, the giallo was, the giallo was turning into... Um, I, I term them bonk-busting giallo because they are about beautiful, rich people having affairs with each other and cheating each other out of money, killing each other off for insurance money and all the rest of it. Usually starring Carol Baker. Yes, Carol Baker. <laughs> uh, and, and generally directed by Umberto Lenzi. That was the way it was going. But Argento with The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, people conning each other out of money and, and um, jet setters being sexy and so on, that was out. And uh, black-gloved, leather-clad crazy sex killers were in. That was what happened. And I think the fact that Dario made these three films bang, 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 within within a couple of years of each other, um, and that they got fairly wide global distribution, they played all over Europe, they played here in the UK in cinemas, they got released in America, they sort of shared a lot of that similar imagery with the Black Glove Killer and the knives and things, the, the sort of twists at various points through the plot, the weird characters. It was almost as though he'd sort of taken the giallo and remoulded it in his own image sort of thing and, to coin a phrase, made a career out of it. Mm. it also, I mean, For me, it also felt like he was playing to a, a, an international audience as well. It wasn't just, a, oh, this is made for the Italian market, we can make a fortune. It felt like it's not just a case of, well, we'll dub it and then we can send it to America, no problem. It felt like, well, how can I position this movie and shoot this movie and show off Rome in a, almost like a tourist kind of way? It was like, you know, we, we're not just going to show you beautiful women, handsome guys, black good killers, all kinds of We're going to show you the beauty of Rome yeah. as well. And it's almost like a tourist kind of thing. You're getting like, tourism via black glove killers. <laughs> yeah. When I write about this stuff, I often say that... Um, Bird of the Crystal Plumage became a surprise international uh, crossover smash hit. I mean, do you think Argento was surprised? Because you're saying there you think he was really going for it. Well, I don't, know, I don't know whether it was consciously or well, whether it was it's just interesting culturally. To, yeah, to, to ponder that, yeah. yeah whether they, him interviewing lots of different people from around the world, working on the Westerns, which are all about the visual. Mm. Maybe he just thought, maybe he's, the way his brain was thinking about constructing movies and of course, was more yeah, he'd, he'd seen the way Leone had crossed mm-hmm. over, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Adam, in terms of what you were saying about uh, the way these films were sold and you were talking about the way in which he, he, he sort of 
wanted to sort of showcase the Italian locations and, and, and send those out to cinema audiences all over the world. I think also in terms of getting that international flavour, his casting is quite interesting because in the films he casts non-Italian actors in, in significant parts and they're, they're reasonably sort of starry names. They're people you've heard of, but they're not... Gregory Peck or or anyone at that level, you know. And, of course, there, there was a, a tendency in the Italian industry to sort of anglicise their own credits. They're, they're famous for this. So even someone like Mario Bava was billed under English-style names to, to try and pretend that, that the Italian product was actually coming out of the UK or out of the States. Whether that actually fooled audiences, I, I, I doubt it very much. But to, when you've got... The uh, sort of people in the in the casts that uh, Dario uses in those early films, that's almost a shorthand to, to sell the films and be able to get them released in these other territories. So they may not necessarily be, be recognisable star names, but the audiences would be able to tell that, yeah, they are English or American actors and they're speaking in their own voices and they're speaking English on set What we when we see their mouths move. Well, they, they were dubbed, of course, because that was a sort, of, um, a sort of given in the Italian industry, but at least the lip sync was very, very good because they were talking in their own language. And uh, so that, that in itself would help to sell the films to an, a non-Italian audience, to an English-speaking audience. Yeah. I can never tell whether um, Susie Kendall's character in Bird is supposed to be American or Italian or English. Mm. I just, you know, yeah, it's yeah. she lives on an island in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one. Yeah. yeah, but that's typical. You know, that's what gives these films their flavour, and they are—they become international films mm. because of that. And uh, but there was a trend for that like, moving to different European cities for all these Jalo movies, wasn't yes. it? And a lot of them were co-productions. Yeah, of course. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, crossover with the creamy as well, the German and, mm. and Danish uh, movies. So you'd often get films set in Copenhagen or in, in German locations. It's interesting how these two forms sort of rose together. And I think me, me and Adam are working on the podcasts through a sort of series of crime movie episodes. You, the regular listeners will have already heard a couple of these. And we're intending to do more on the Jalo and on the Creamy at a future date. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spend so, all day talking about oh, Jalo. Yeah, yeah. But um, so we won't go into intense detail about that today but uh, we're going to do a sort of rough chronology of his career today but he's one of those filmmakers where that's sort of impossible because his career does sort of jump and he sort of refers back to his early work with some later films so if I throw in a couple of his later titles how do you guys think that films like Tenebrae from 1982 and uh, Non Ho Sono Sleepless from 2001 connect with the Animal Trilogy, this early work. Well, I think the intermediate film between those is uh, Deep Red, isn't it? Profundo Rosso. Yes, yeah. And uh, our listeners can't hear this, but Adam's sitting here and his COVID mask today has got the uh, poster image from uh, Profundo Rosso on it. So we really live this stuff, you know, for you listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he, in fact, there was even a tactical retreat. You've talked about some of the chopping and changing in his career. After the Animal Trilogy, he made... Um, Five Days in Milan, which, which is a historical, sort of historical drama, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then maybe he was trying to, you know, shift career gears, go somewhere else. That didn't work out, so he was back to the Jarlo. But it wasn't, you know, if he was slinking back with his tail between his legs, it was quite a slink to make 
Profundo Rosso. We talked about how um, you know Adam was saying just just what a, an impact Bird of the Crystal Plumage had, so, and and we agreed that that changed the course of the Giallo. Um, many would argue, I would agree that the, he perfected the Giallo with. Um, Profundo Rosso Deep Red. Yeah. Now, there's a reason I skipped over Deep Red, ah. actually. <laughs> it's, it's because I, I see that as an absolutely pivotal film in Dario's career. Mm. Many fans think it's his best movie, to, to even to this day. And um, uh, they may well be right. Um, but uh, why I didn't sort of mention that in tandem with the Animal Trilogy is because... I think you're seeing the first glimpses there of magic mm. entering the world of Argento and the mm. supernatural entering the world of Argento. It is at heart a giallo, and we'll we'll go on to talk about it in detail as we go. But uh, but I, I I think it links rather more with his later witchcraft movies. Um, it's like a first sort of little toe in the water, stepping stone towards those. Um, and then I think with Tenebrae in the early eighties. He sort of comes right back to the, the the animal trilogy and the films that we've been talking about. So it's it's it's, it's hard to uh, sort of put them in compartments, isn't it? I mean, I um, this is what we try and do here. But I, I think even Four Flies on Grey Velvet, there's a sort of a magical strand running through that. Yes, yeah. there is. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, which, uh, which apparently he wasn't happy about when he was making that, wasn't he? Argento, he didn't like the the sort of like the Native American ghetto clause for the for the twist at the end of that movie. Mm. It was a sort of like a spiritual, supernatural esque ending in with it. And I don't think he, it was on record as saying he didn't quite like that. Four flies. Yeah. Maybe that's why it was so hard to get hold of all these. Yeah, movies. maybe. Could be, could be, because it was, um, uh, you know, I mean, everything's out there on Blu ray now, mm. but there was, there was a time. Um, you had to go to the Scala and sit there through yes, all night and yeah, see yeah, four yeah. flies on Grove Although we, we did play it at the Metro Cinema in Derby. There was, ra- there was like one ragged 16mm print somewhere in the country and we did get hold of that in Derby. And uh, as I remember, I think I think you, you attended on the night, John, didn't you? Oh, actually, yeah, I did. Yeah, yes, I gave an yeah. introduction to you that did. one. But yeah. it's so long ago. Yeah, I yeah. Forgot. But four flies on Grey Velvet was... It was this film that was impossible to see for a while, and then when this one 16 millimeter print surfaced, you sort of saw it every opportunity you Probably possibly could. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. There is magic in that movie as well, and you're but starting I think, to get. I think the deep red thing. It's not just the magic in the plot. I think it's the way that they're shot as yes, well. Yes, very much. Particularly, very much. particularly the, the attention to detail and the set design for Deep Red has got a lot in common with like Suspiria and Inferno. Yes, that was the sort of point I was trying to lead yeah, to yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I i think there are there are indications of fantasy in the plot of deep bread and and things that just aren't explained even by the end of the movie you know the thing with the giallo and and with the german form the creamy as well is that uh, you do normally however convoluted it may be you do normally get everything wrapped up at the end and you get some ludicrous explanation <laughs> of how it all happened and why there are three killers and all of this you know and deep red is one of the movies that sort of leaves a few little strands dangling i think and and sort of sends the audience away knowing what happened at the end of the movie but not necessarily being able to explain weird stuff like the premonitions at the start or the 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 odd mechanical doll that yes. bursts mm. into a room at one point these are great great moments and this is dario really sort of spreading his wings here and saying look you know you can do anything you like with cinema and you don't have to explain yourself 
Yeah, and, and a, a, mo- a motto that he took to heart, <laughs> I think, for the rest of his career. Yeah, not, not always in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, always in yeah. a good way. But moving on to Tenebrae, I think Tenebrae is one of those ones where uh, Jallo is often seen as a sort of, like, um, inspiration for the American slasher movie. And you have Tenebrae coming out in the early 80s after that boom of American slashers. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of feels like he's trying to maybe cash in on that a little Respond bit. Respond to it in the way Response that Hitchcock that. did with Frenzy sure. after the Euro boom. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it, it feels like he's going back to that and making it as clean and as straightforward as a Jello can get. But, but for that, Ameri- as if it's a slasher movie, um, the fact that it's not in- involving teenagers is probably the one thing that Italians don't do. That's one of the big differences between the Jello movies and the slasher movies. The people in, in the Jello movies are grown adults. <laughs> it's like the, the, the American slashers, they're all teen- idiot teenagers, whereas, you know, these are proper people with proper careers. Real people. Yeah, yeah real yeah. people. And um, your, yeah, your some... dad, you know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not, 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 your, not your mates from university. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I think Tenebrae is fantastic. I think it holds up as that sort of... It's not obviously not on the level of, of, of Deep Red. Yeah, but, but for it, what it is, mm. as, as a sort of horror thriller, as a sort of slasher thriller, it's really, really superior. Yeah, I mean, it has that wonderful shot where he goes over the house, uh, the, the camera goes into one the window. The crane. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the ridiculous crane shot, which at the time was amazing. And yeah. even now watching it, you think, God, that's, that's incredible. And then you would not yeah. see that in Friday the 13th Part 6. Yeah, and critics, John, John, probably foremost among them, have often said that the violence in Tenebrae well, one one thing that's been said about the movie, and this may well be a, a, a sort of misquote from you, John, <laughs> is, is um, that people reviewing that film talk about the the sprays of blood and and which is which are excessive, absolutely excessive. Whenever um, a victim is 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 claimed by the killer, there are like geezers of blood spraying <laughs> everywhere. But people have said, you know, it sprays up the, the sort of white walls of the apartments and the kitchens and so on like a piece of modern art mm, mm. and that's that's intentional you know dario is doing that on purpose it's also quite prescient because uh, if you consider the way that italian genre cinema was essentially ruined by uh, the, the death blows were dealt by uh, silvio berlusconi who deregulated italian tv and in tenebrae dario uh, makes a point of chopping his wife's arm off <laughs> that's uh, that's Mrs. Berlusconi going yep, there. Yep. The There's a, a symbolic scene if you want to look for one. Yeah, I, it's, yeah. it's funny. I always when I always talk about like why I love these movies, I always leave with that they're classy. And, and when people say classy, they think, "Oh my god, but how can this be classy? You've got blood flying everywhere on the walls." It's like, but if you compare that to other films that are like, there is an art, yes, about very, it. There's very a style yeah, about yeah. it. Well, is Guernica by Picasso not art? Because exactly. That's, yeah. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Absolutely. Sure. And it's more it's more in keeping with that kind of mm. depiction of blood and violence than yeah. it is with um, Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. And I, th- I think Dario in person really does try to push this this side of of what he's all about and what his art is about let's move on to his later jellos then shall we and see whether the the (laughs) argument of poetry still holds up (laughs) well i think in the case of non hosono it does this is a film that he made in 2000 2001 and it's perhaps for me his last masterpiece and he's one of those horror directors who's actually made four or five masterworks. Mm. There aren't many who've done this. And uh, Argento has managed to sort of reinvent the horror film several times, 
or I'm not saying Non-Hosono reinvented the horror film, but it sort of reinvented Dario's career, or at, at the very least, we were talking about him earlier before starting today, and we were saying that uh, how we, we watched that film, and you thought, even if he didn't like the film all the way through, I think for the first 20, 25 minutes... I think we were all thinking, Dario's not lost it. This, <laughs> this is great. It's I mean, still in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The scene to focus on in Non Hosono is, um, is, of course, the opening 15, 20-minute victim being chased through a moving train, which is just up there with his very, very best sustained set pieces. But that reminds me of the... Um, the for Suspiria, the only thing more frightening than the last 90 minutes of this film or the first 15 or whatever. Yeah, that's, yeah, there's yeah. a sort of implicit anticlimax in there. I know, yeah, it's almost saying, yeah, yeah. The, the start of this, yeah. this movie is great. Yeah, <laughs> forget the rest. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Suspiria yeah. certainly doesn't, but uh, mm. I, you know, I think you're keener on Nono Sono than, than, yeah. than I am. Well, I think what carries Nono Sono for me is it does become a sort of Argento's greatest hits. But for me, at that point in his career, that was better than what we'd been getting for oh, the previous 10 years. You know? And for me, it's also a sign of when Argento works with major, major, major stars... I mentioned earlier how he sort of went for sort of second stringers and you're getting people like Michael Brandon in his films in, in the early 70s, you know. Hey, um, come on, he was in Dempsey. Dempsey. Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's up there, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he's up there. But he's no Harvey Keitel, though, you know, and he's, he's certainly no Max von Sydow. And, and Max really, really, really carries non-hosono for me. And I, th- I think um, whatever deficiencies that movie's got, the fact that Max pops up every few minutes and, again, knocks it out of the park. He, he's great. How necessary do you think his character's dementia was? I'm sure Dario thinks yeah, so. Yeah. I can't answer that because I think Dario has got reasons for that to be there. It might, have a, might be another way of saying, I saw something, but I don't quite know, which is <laughs> runs through his film, figuring the clue out, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it, That's an interesting point to make there, John, because this actually extends back to one of our favourite films here at Quad, uh, Antonioni's Blow Up, you know, which Argento has sort of riffed on so many times. And here we are again, possibly with that happening here, you know. You you programmed them on on a a bill together. I did, yeah. I need to get over to Derby more often. I need to get over here more often, I really do. I think the difference between Blow Up and Profundo Rosso is... Antonioni is making an art film where he doesn't care about the plot, mm. whereas Argento's making an, a, a, a crime film that's posing as an art film almost. That's, that's, the way around, that's yeah. plot based. Yeah, but but because he's so stylish and so skilled, it turns into an art movie Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Well, the first time I saw Blow Up, at the point where the penny dropped for me that he wasn't going to solve the mm. mystery, it felt like a slap in the face. Yeah, and yeah. I think Argento felt that as well. So he presents this fiendish mystery in Profundo Rosso and then resolves it with incredible yeah. well, flair he, and cleverness. He, he, you know? he leads the audience down the path of, this is going to be like Blow Up. This, this is going to be an unsolvable crime, you know, and, and then, as you say, pulls this astonishing sort of explanation out at and, the end. And, and the astonishing, you know, we were astonished towards the end of Blow Up, but the, the, the kids of the VHS generation, Video Nasties and all the rest of it, when you got your Fletcher video VHS of Deep Red, and at the end he said, I did see the killer's face, and you think, no, no, you didn't. And you rewind, and 
and you realise yeah. you saw you, it. You as saw well. the yeah. face, and yeah. you did. You know, it, that is genius. That yeah. is yeah. that is as good as anything in, yeah. in thriller cinema. You know. Yeah. So we've we've kind of talked around it now. Let's 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 dive deep into the reign of uh, the opening of Suspiria. Let's move into the Three Mothers trilogy because arguably these are the ones that are well, the first two especially are the ones that people are going to talk about are the ones that changed yeah. horror. So cinema. is this Argento's Godfather trilogy then? <laughs> in in, re- is, in reference to Mother of Tears. I think belated yeah, I think you're not wrong yeah. in, the, in the sort of like the drop-off. Okay. <laughs> which, which gives us the first two, which are just indelible. You know, we're, we're unapologetic in, in calling them classics. The question is, which one's your favourite, guys? Suspiria or Inferno? I'm not going to say right now which is my favourite. I'm not even sure. But I am going to say that the... Of anything I've ever written about films, the stuff that I keep getting the most flack for and people really hate it is when I say that Suspiria is a giallo. People just really <laughs> kick up against that. They, they, they can't take it. People talk as though there's a strict demarcation between the giallo and Suspiria. And I, I don't see it. I think Suspiria, to me, is a giallo. It's, it's most notable elements are those and where it veers into the horror film. But I think it's a film about an amateur detective trying to sort out a clue that she witnessed and she wasn't quite sure what it means and she keeps ruminating about it. There are regular set-piece killings that are stylish, bravura stuff. Um, There are POV shots. I mean... How to me is this not even a Jarlow-flavoured horror film? Sure. Horror-flavoured Jarlow. People talk about Short Night of the Glass Dolls. They say... Perfume of the Lady in Black, it's a jolly. I mean, if those films are jolly, how is Suspiria not a jolly? Yeah, and Adam touched on this earlier on when you, you were sort of saying that there are these elements of mm. magic and fantasy sort of dotted through those previous films mm. that we've talked about already. And I think it develops more and more and more, and then Deep Red is, is threatens to be taken over by it at times, mm. pulls itself back and, and does the whole Nick and Nora Charles mm. sort of 1930s <laughs> murder mystery sort <laughs> of thing which balances it out a little but then Suspiria just seems to topple right over into fantasy but you've almost it's almost the reverse there John of what we were talking about earlier and I think this is what you're you're sort of pinpointing is what you've got with Suspiria is a raging witchcraft fantasy Mm. which is which is peppered with Jarlo cliches ra- rather than the hard Jarlo, which um, has these fantasy elements dotted in. You well, know, it's almost a switcheroo. Yeah, Su- Susie Banyan's trying to find out who done it. Yeah, and the answer yeah. is a witch. <laughs> if it's a witch, this is where your fantasy comes in. I'm saying there's a, there's a much more easier explanation why yeah. people say it's not a Jarlo because they're snobs. Uh-huh. That's yeah. ultimately yeah. what it is. The Jallos are sleazy thrillers. Whereas Suspiria is a beautiful work of art, mm. a horror artwork. Yeah, yeah. And I think you, if you say, no, 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 it's, it's got its roots in Jello, oh, no, no, it can't have its roots in Jello because beauty like that doesn't grow from rubbish like this. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think that is very much in, in woven through yeah. the narrative of Suspiria. And I think the point all three of us are trying to emphasise in, in talking about those early films of Dario is that um, Argento is sort of off on his own path here he's if you you can almost watch those first six horror movies in a row and you can see the development of how the fantasy is there from the start in something like bird with the crystal plumage certainly overtly by the time you reach four flies on gray velvet and then it, it it gradually takes over until you get to inferno and it's what the film's all about you know you've got this completely 
brilliant, taught, but totally plotless. That is pretty much removed from the giallo. I would concede that that is not a giallo. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it has giallo-style deaths and murders in mm. it. So, mm. uh, but you can't really term that as uh, connected with giallo because I think Dario's career path has sort of now tipped that mm. right over on its head. And I think you can't really compare his work to his contemporaries in that sense and use these demarcation lines no. because he's off on his own his own peculiar path, I think, I right mean, from that's, the start. That's one of the things, when you watch that first 15 minutes of Suspiria... It's built like a dream. The yeah, whole film's yeah, built like yeah. a dream. You don't know whether what's actually happening is actually happening from, sure. from, from minute one of the film. And that's not the same as a Jello, if you're mm. looking at it from that point of view. You, the Jello ones are usually, uh, as Dario's career has gone further and further, he's become less interested in the intricacies of plot. And it's almost like a distraction for him, and he just wants to put the visuals on the screen. And that obviously reaches its zenith in, in Inferno. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in Suspiria, it feels like it's the first one where he's just gone, okay. What can we do? What can we know? We've 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 done this. We've done that. We've done the other. We've, we've we've built up success. We've built up the kudos. We've built up the the money in the bank, ready to jump. Let's jump in with both feet. And he does that in that first the whole film. But that first fifteen minutes is a real statement yeah, of like yeah. the, the music's coming in. You've got the the pounding soundtrack, the rain beating down, the the weird lights, the crazy sets, the beautiful interior design of the flats and things like that. It's just it feels like you're you're walking through someone's living dream. Yeah, and we've actually got a character on screen who's representing us and she doesn't know what's going on either she's sort of thrown into this and hasn't got a clue Mm. and as you say John has to become our detective and has to be our eyes and ears and work it all out I mean Adam again mentioned the music Uh, music this goes back to the thing about Argento being a rock music journalist and uh He's had great collaborations with Morricone, obviously not in the same class as the uh, the Leone Morricone collaborations because nothing is, you know. Mm. But he he's worked well with him with the Goblins, Keith Emerson, mm, yeah, because um, the Goblins are sort of the uh, Italian ELP surrogates, um, <laughs> and you know Donaccio, you know the music's tremendously important for Argento. Yeah, yeah. Do we feel like the music obviously? It plays such a big part, particularly in the seventies films, mm. and when you get to the nineties, where maybe he's not as in touch with what his works on screen for general horror audiences. Is that where maybe where the, the first signs of disconnect between his audience comes? Well, he does this crazy thing uh, in those movies. He just drops the needle on Iron Maiden and Motorhead. Mm. Yeah, at completely inappropriate you get, like, moments. A greatest hits album. And yeah. some people really hate yeah. that. I quite yeah. like yeah. it. I yeah. think it's you know, yeah. pleasantly bonkers. Well, the, the music's good bit by bit, but I think people's problem with it is it's it's not what they're used to in an Argento film. They're used to either an incredible sort of orchestral store, mm. score by a Morricone or someone <laughs> beautiful music counterpointing against the violence or you've got this new invention which arrives with deep red and and persists through the witchcraft movies of goblin and keith emerson and progressive rock and synthesizers and loudness not the music that horror movie audiences were used to at that time and yet it changed the game Mm. And suddenly you reach the mid-80s and it's these bizarre sort of <laughs> almost like K-Tel compilation albums, you know, mm. of heavy metal's greatest hits. Sort but of even thing. when he yeah, brings yeah. back Simonetti for uh, Mother of Tears and... Was well, he on the card player? Card player. He did, yes. Yeah. I, I, so I couple... think he's, he's on bits of Dracula, mm. I think. Okay, when, well, when yeah. he brings back Simonetti, it doesn't feel like... We, for a start, I think, I think one of the things is like Argento's not in the same place as he was when no, he was making no, those no. first two Mother's films. So he 
he's a different filmmaker. But equally, Simonetti's a different musician as yeah. well yeah. by that point. So you're not going to get credit. And it just, feels, it just feels like it's not connecting. But it's almost like it's a selling point to put those two names on the poster. Yeah, and fans do respond to that. They see Argento and Goblin or Argento and Simonetti on a, on a poster together. And something clicks in, in our brains because it is us we're talking about. You know? But I think there's, there is this fan base out there that do respond to that and then inevitably are disappointed when they see the results and it ain't what they saw in Suspiria 40 years ago. So we're talking about disappointment then. Let's move on to Mother of Tears. <laughs> before we go on to that, sorry, because the second one was Inferno. Oh, sure, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, I was asked before, which film do I like better? I mean, Suspiria. I, I ducked the question, but Suspiria. But Inferno is such a wonderful film. I, I My first experience of watching Inferno, I, I sat down... About 18 or something like that and I went to the video shop when we had video shops and I rented Inferno and Evil Dead 2 and I watched them both <laughs> in an afternoon for the very first time it was a glorious afternoon <laughs> a great day <laughs> yeah via, via the auspices of uh, Derby art cinemas I've been very lucky to see Inferno on the big screen mm. three times and I've introduced <laughs> it once which was its mm. first screening here at Quad and uh um, some 10, 11 years ago, I guess now. We screened, and, um, we screened it here a few years ago as part of an all-nighter. Yeah. So it was like slap-bang in the middle of an all-nighter and it broke people. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, really did. Uh, they were yeah. tired. They were watching this film. It has, it's like I say, there's no plot. It's an assault visually, musically. It's, it, 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 it broke people at four in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So, well, Keith, Keith, Emerson. <laughs> Keith Emerson certainly woke them up. But uh, Inferno for me is the one, just because I, I, I wish Argento would make more films like it. I think it's the film he was always working towards. And I think if you're new to his films, do follow that line through, as we're saying, from Bird with the Crystal Plumage up to Inferno, and you'll sort of find it's, it's a progression. I, th- I think it really is. It's a creative artistic arc that he's followed, his own singular, he's followed his demon, he's followed his muse, and yet he's had commercial success with it. So... It's yeah. real auteur stuff. You know? Yeah, I, again, I, I think he's changed the game in, in a mm. way that so few filmmakers do, in a way that maybe a Tim Burton did later on in introducing audiences to the dark stuff, you know, and saying, yeah, I'm going to make Batman and I'm going to make Batman Returns and I'm going to do Edward Scissorhands and a mass audience is going to like it. I don't think even Dario quite got that mass audience that a filmmaker of Burton's type did, but it was it was a similar process. Mm. It was, I'm going to get my personal vision on screen and it's going to be commercially successful. It does remind me, Inferno reminds me of, of the progression of Francis Ford Coppola towards Apocalypse Now, yeah, where they yeah. both feel like they're the end points of a certain vision, a certain point. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, both of them starting there with Vittorio Storaro as the mm. cinematographer yeah, on Bird yeah. of Crystal Crimmage and then going to sit out. But you just feel that it's like that sort of like, well, yes, there's a plot to Apocalypse Now, yes, there's some sort of plot to Inferno, but it really doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's the journey, it's, the, it's the, the trip you're going on. Sure. Now, you've reintroduced Coppola into the conversation, so let's go back to this Godfather 3 thing. And yeah. uh, um, Argento's got uh-huh. his very own Godfather 3, so 27 years after Inferno, and after it was, it was like people waiting for Doctor Who to come back on TV. Argento fans... Every five minutes and in every fanzine and magazine you picked up, when's the third part of the Three Mothers trilogy coming out? And this went on and on and on and on. 
And there was even a movie called The Black Cat by Argento's great mate uh, Luigi Cozzi. That was made in the late 80s and that was supposed to be... Cozzi even had got so fed up with Argento not making a third part to the trilogy, he decided to have a go himself. But then... The clamour continued for when's Dario going to do the, 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 the Mother of Tears movie? You know, when are we going to see Mater Lacrimarum? Eventually, it all caved in, the film arrived, and um, it was Godfather 3, basically. <laughs> but not that that's a bad thing in my book, but uh, how about you guys? I, I think he teased and teased and teased, and yeah, we may have, yeah, one day we'll have the three, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, it reached a point where it was the career was floundering a bit. It's like, well, I can always pull out the conclusion of the Three Mothers trilogy, <laughs> and it's kind of too little, too late, Dario. Yeah, kind of smacking of um, desperation. I, uh, for me, it felt. I, I was. I watched it recently again, and it didn't feel like it was linked to the first two. And that's that ultimate. It's it's got characters talking about Mater Lacrimarum, and you see. I mean, you, you build up you build up like this character of, of the final mother, the Lacrimarum, as being beautiful and deadly, the most beautiful. And it's like, how do you cast the most beautiful woman yeah, in the world yeah. who's a demon? You you just can't. You can't accurately cast that. It's almost impossible casting. And I think that's one of the things that really lets this down. I don't think the the casting of that character who was supposed to about the end of the world, blah blah blah. She hasn't got the screen presence. Yeah. Now, had had Dario had Dario made that film sort of two years later instead of doing Tenebrae, if he'd done it straight after Inferno, we'd had uh, Anya Pironi in. Um... And there was also talk of uh, Jennifer Connelly being the mother of tears. At right. One point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so we'd seen a glimpse of what may or may not have been the, the, the Mother of Tears, very briefly in Inferno. And then Jennifer Connolly, who sort of became Argento's muse in the mid-'80s, sort of connected with the part as well. So either of those, I think, would have achieved what Adam's mm. asking for. Yeah, I, mean, both, I, kept, I kept watching and thinking, why isn't, why isn't yes. Monica Bellucci in this yeah, role? Yeah. Or someone um, like that. Um, and what, what we've got is... Um, I, I don't know much about the lady who plays the part. I take it she's a, a, a sort of Italian model or I something. Think she's Israeli. an Israeli yeah. actress and model, right, yeah. Right, probably yeah. model yeah. and actress. And she is very, very beautiful, but yes. she's, she's not what we've been led to expect mm. by mm. any means. What tickled me was that they have these uh, goth girls acting um, sort of... Uh, outrageously around Rome. It's supposed to signal that the apocalypse is... But, I mean, compared to the goings-on in my high street on an average Friday night, it was pretty tame stuff. Yeah. Oh, but I, think that's, I think that's one of the things as well. You have these characters, these, these goths, that all the witches of the world are descending on Rome, and they're all goths. They're all, like, teen goths. Yes. And you kind of feel like, well... I, don't, you don't, I didn't get that from Suspiria. I didn't get that from Inferno. And suddenly I'm getting the craft... In uh, yeah. the, the Fruza Bulk nineties um, movie, I'm getting that style. Yeah, of, yeah, I think, yeah, and it just yeah. it jarred for me. It didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. But then this this is where I think directors like Guadagnino have sort of stolen more from Mother of Tears than than they did from Suspiria and Inferno. You know, because that's got that sort of quality to it too of of having this sort of coven of of, of young women that are sort of you know, plotting to pull the rug out from under the world and take it over, you know. I think they actually work in a way, but they, they work in a way that, as Adam has already suggested, I think you need to remove this film from the Suspiria and Inferno universe and judge it on its own merits. Judge it as an individual piece rather than the third part of a trilogy. And I think it's distanced enough 
that you're able to watch it as a standalone film. There are these references to characters from Suspiria and situations from Inferno and so on, but you don't need to know what those are to to, to sort of be able to follow the plot of Mother of Tears. I, I think it plays very much as a sort of 21st century equivalent of the type of Italian movie that was coming along 10 years after Dario had hit big in the sort of mid-70s to the, the early 80s. The films that were coming out straight on VHS by directors like Umberto Lenzi, Luigi Cozzi and so on. And you were getting the first inklings here of people making films for Italian TV rather than aimed at cinemas. We were getting them on video over here on Video Rental. They all had sort of gothic trappings, mixed in with the, the Jarlow-type violence. Again, they were all trying to copy what he'd done, but they were doing it on one-tenth of the budgets. It was going straight to VHS. And Mother of Tears sort of plays almost like a real upmarket version of that type of Italian movie from about 1987-88 for me. And on that score, I think it's a huge success. But as, as a sequel to Inferno, it, it don't cut the mustard. No way. There's another female in that film, and a lot of people might suggest, I certainly would, that there was a time when Dario was thinking less about his own career development and more about finding good roles for his daughter. And some of them weren't even that good roles, you know. <laughs> no, and no. I think that's another criticism that could be levelled at that film. And yeah. One thing I'd like to talk about in respect of the Argento family is... Um, because Dario had, had also worked with another daughter, Fiore, briefly, but Arzia became his sort of new muse for a time, and in fact, right, right up to, to date. What do we think about the way that Dario has sort of depicted Arzia in movies? Because it all gets a little bit Donald Trumpish at times. Mm. I find it awkward watching it because you know, you know, that, well, that's his daughter, and there she is naked writhing around in a shower or whatever. Uh, I find it odd, but only because I know he directed it. Yeah, I and think if you look at it from, from, from a cold point of view, it's like, well, this film was shot in 1996 or whatever, and if I saw this and I didn't know the director was the father of the lead actress, it wouldn't seem odd that those scenes were in the movie. It's right. only because I know that her father directed it, it feels odd. I think that people... Oh, he went off the boil with Phenomena, did he? I don't believe he did. But... Those films, up to and including opera, which I think is the classic run. The classic run is from Bird to Opera in my book. And um, but you'd have crazy thing in those th things in those films because oh, the plot of Phenomena doesn't make any sense. What do you think the plot of Inferno <laughs> makes sense? Do you think the plot of Four Flies on Velvet makes sense? Um, but he would do in his crazy operatic, full blown, mind blowing pomp. Argento would have crazy things in the films. Now later on when the canvas is reduced, the budget is reduced you've got much less resources to make them. He puts silly things in the films and they just annoy me uh, like is it um, Nono Sono where you've got a tap dancing dwarf coroner or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the one that really drives me up the wall is there's the bit in Trauma where Brad Dourif is decapitated and his severed head is sitting there talking to people yeah. It's not physically possible because to talk, lungs have to pump air over the trachea and the larynx and all the rest of it, and then you speak. And he's sitting there yakking away, and he's ahead. It's just so stupid. And I can't stand that in the later films, although I'll tolerate any amount of wackiness in the earlier films because they're so great. He just seems to be a director that he needs to be, particularly the, film, the, the filmmaker he became after getting to Inferno and that kind of that style of filmmaking, that 
a, a drop of budget does it for me and get really sucked. I think that really affected Argento on stuff like the card player and the Palmer on recent things like like Passion and, and Domino and so on. And um, the willingness to, to make epic cinema is still there in these guys. I think you get it with people like Bill Friedkin as well. But as, as we say, they're 80 now and, and the budgets and the interest from young producers and, and finances just isn't there anymore. They'd rather make Scream 5, yeah. We'll talk a bit more about Phenomena and some of the 80s stuff, but I, I, before we leave the, uh, the, the Witchcraft trilogy, I just want to talk about the position of the witch in movies and TV and art in general through the sort of mid-50s up to the late 70s. And the witch, the witch had almost stopped being a scary figure, you know. You saw it in Bewitched on TV or something, you know. It was, the witches were either used for comedy or they appeared in fantasy films. And I think one of the crowning achievements of, of the trilogy, and certainly Suspiria, is that Argento made witches absolutely terrifying again. Yeah. I would agree with that, but being slightly younger than you guys, I grew up watching uh, The Witches by uh, Nicholas Rogue, which <laughs> they ain't friendly, nice witches. <laughs> They're horrible, horrible witches. That terrified me. Yeah. So to, I've never thought of a witch well, as being anything to, to more follow, scary. To follow through my argument, then, I, w- I would say that Rogue's another person who was influenced by Argento. So, uh, but yeah, I think... He brought witches back to a peak of terror. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think, obviously, those horror characters, you know, your Frankenstein's vampires, your werewolves, all of those characters stopped being scary around the same period when they were moving into meeting Abbott Ab- and Costello. You know, it's like they, they became characters that were a, a bit defanged, for want of a better word. Yeah. And I think witches were part of that, and it takes those filmmakers to reinvent those characters. Sure. So let's do the late 80s then. We've got Dario doing uh, Phenomena, Opera. Um, he's also moving into production. He's yeah. producing the two de- the first two Demons films mm-hmm. uh, directed by his mate Lamberto Barva. He's producing for this young blade called uh, Michele Soavi, who's come out of nowhere. So what about Dario, sort of 85 to, to 1990? Well, I mean, if you even wind it a little further back, he produced uh, Dawn of the Dead. The exact role he had in Dawn of the Dead, is there's some dispute over that. But um, certainly he had a deal on it and he had his cut of it. And his cut of Dawn of the Dead will be the one that made such a big hit in Italy. And that will be why we got zombie flesh eaters. Leading to the zombie craze. everything yeah, yeah. that came after that, yeah. which just crossed over now into... Um, I mean, those of us who've been writing about this stuff for 30 years now find that... Uh, People are, you know, just the world is zombie crazy, and we say, what about Lucio Fulci? Lucio, who, you know? Is yeah. there an argument that Dario Argento became like the Steven Spielberg of horror in the 80s, where he was attaching his name to the production side of things in the same way Steven Spielberg presents the explorers? I think he was a bit more hands on than that. I think that it was Argento's cut of Dawn of the Dead that was so successful in Italy, and then he got Zombie Due, the Fulci film. Argento took Fabrizio down just the uh, producer of that to court unsuccessfully. But then that whole uh, zombie thing opened up and there was all this gonzo horror, you know, and the gonzo horror thing probably ends in 1985 with Demons, which is another film he produced for another director, Lamberto Bava. So, yeah, it was producer's hat on. He was a significant figure as well. And there is that question of how much did Lamberto direct, how much... Was Michele Soavi calling the shots on his own movies? You know, but to be in there, and, and certainly on the posters, it is always Dario Argento's The Church, Dario yeah, Argento's yeah. Uh, 
the sect. Sure. And during this period, though, as we've already mentioned, Dario is um, is continuing to work as a director as well in his own right. So uh, you've already mentioned, John, the, the wackiness, as we've called it, of bits of phenomena and, and of opera. Now... These films are, are strange movies, possibly because of the soundtrack thing we mentioned mm. earlier, where suddenly you've got all, all this crazy heavy metal on the soundtracks instead of the more fluid sort of prog rock scores that we well, that were That was an 80, 80s yeah. thing, was where it's yeah. like, well, we're, we're, we're compiling a soundtrack, we're not doing a score. Because the soundtrack had commercial value of exactly. its own. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. There was stuff on the soundtrack albums yeah. that never went anywhere near the movie. Exactly, well, you, see, sure. you see Demons, sure. Demons is literally, who's in Demons, I don't know, but it's got a, it's got a Billy Idol song on it, you know, because yeah. yeah. they're all over the poster. Yeah, that's it. I think there's a soundtrack album for Phenomena in Italy that has um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood on it. <laughs> How do we think phenomena and opera sort of sit within Dario's career then? Well, you said, John, that you, th- you consider those two films as the end of the, 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 golden, the golden purple period, picture. Yeah. And I, I think I'd agree with that as well. I think, I think opera, whilst not being as good as Profondo Rosso, as, as, as The Animals. I, I get, to be fair, I think it's probably in the same ballpark as Four Flies and Cat yeah, Nine yeah. Tales. The, the great, yeah, the great set pieces are still there. Yeah. And, and, you know, all, although they, they maybe don't quite hang together as complete movies, I think that's not what fans are necessarily interested in with Dario, certainly by this point. As long as you get four or five extended sequences that knock your socks off. Mm. They don't necessarily have to connect together. And I think Inferno allows that. The fact that Dario has made Inferno and it's been so freeform and so plotless has allowed him to then make films like Phenomena and Opera that that don't necessarily sort of connect together or, or make linear sense, but that have these wow moments in them. And also have these bizarre moments, like I mean, the the plot of phenomena. If you wrote that down on on the back of an envelope and showed it to someone, they'd never believe that there was a film that all this stuff happened in. You've got fly detectives, psychically connected to a schizophrenic schoolgirl. Indeed, yeah. indeed. You've got a razor wielding chimpanzee. The most bizarre aspect of the film for me is one that came in to full bloom a couple of years after. Uh, Donald Pleasance plays a Scottish entomologist character and has a ball with the role. And two years later, a movie came out in Italy with the Franco Nero reprising his role yes. as Django from the, the late Absolutely. 60s. And um, it's a weird film anyway because it's not quite a Western. It's not quite what you'd expect. I, I don't really know how to describe Django Strikes again. It's, a, it's the only genuine uh, Django sequel, which isn't really a Django film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a period piece, though, even though it's not quite a Western. So it's set decades before Phenomena. And there's Donald Pleasance playing his character from Phenomena. Yeah. <laughs> so, Argento's juggling a lot during that movie, a crazy plot visuals. Keeping Donald Pleasant Donald sober during that film was probably a challenge as well. I think he was drinking quite a lot, hence the reprising the role in, in two movies' time or whatever. Yeah. I think when Phenomena came out, there was a certain sort of critical establishment in this country that didn't like it and said it was rubbish, and a lot of people were just playing follow the leader. And I always spoke up for this film. I think it's been very pleasing to me that in the succeeding decades, people have picked up on it and said, yeah, it is a great, schlocky, insane horror movie. But I think there's a, more of a multiplicity of views, you know. Yeah, well, there were, two, there were two big problems with it in this country. One is that it had half an hour 
um, slashed out of it and got released under the title Creepers to to cinemas and mainly to video. The other I remember is the year it came out over here, 1986, was the year that Michael Parkinson stood in for Barry Norman on the Film 86 programme. And any movie that didn't have Gene Kelly in them, which was all of them, <laughs> he, he hated, you know. And every review was, oh, why, why can't Robert Mitchum or Gene Kelly be in this film and improve it, you know. That, that I suppose, brings us on to opera. You're pitching this, John, as Argento's last glorious fling, really. What's so great about opera, then? When I interviewed Argento, I suggested to him that the story of opera came prior to the story of phenomena. And he says, yes, yes, you spotted it. They should be watched, you know, the videos should be watched, the uh, not in chronological order. Um, it's just the same part and parcel of the whole universe, the, the, the whole insanity. Yeah. You know? Now, John, you mentioned uh, Dawn of the Dead earlier. Yes. I want to talk um, briefly, not, not too much about this, but just briefly mention one strand of Dario's career, which has run throughout his career, which is the American connection. Yes. Yeah. It starts with his relationship with George Romero on Dawn of the Dead, and that being an Italian co-production, which, make, which sort of makes it part of that great Italian zombie lineage, you know, which isn't something that's always recognised by people. But um, every now and then he's jumped back into the States and sort of done stuff over there. We've mentioned trauma already. Um, and, and George is back again. Romero's back in Two Evil Eyes. Two Evil Eyes, which yeah. was their, their project originally, I gather. It was, the idea was going to be a sort of four-part film based on stories by Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, people talked about um, John Landis maybe doing one, Clive Barker doing one. Yeah, um, I heard John Carpenter's name mentioned. Yeah, all, yeah, all, yeah. all the usual. You, Four you Evil can, Eyes doesn't work, though. <laughs> no, no, indeed, indeed. So un- unless you wear specs, you know. Dario's uh, version of The Black Cat, and we've alluded to this already uh, with Cotzi and others, I think... Every Italian exploitation director goes through this rite of passage where they make a James Bond ripoff, <laughs> they make a, a science fiction outer space movie, they make Maybe a western, they make a western, they make a film about a terminally ill child, which were all the rage in the seventies. They maybe <laughs> make a cannibal or zombie movie. And they Don't all forget your post-apocalyptic, yeah, yeah, fall yeah, of the Mad Max ripoff. Movie, yeah. And for some reason, a lot of them seem to make a version of the Black Cat. Yes. And here's Dario doing it after everybody else. But for me, I, I, I think this, rather than opera, is the great last gasp. Oh, up yeah. until up until Non Hosano, I think. But again, part of that is down to Dario just going crazy with his depiction of violence, which. Dario being interviewed by fanzines and magazines around this time constantly, constantly, constantly referred to his battles with the British censor, which I suppose reached their peak with Creepers, as we've just mentioned. But he he went on and on and on about this for years, even after the 2000 period where censorship in this country was was, was sort of starting to, to... uh, lesson a little and we were starting to get more uncut, more uncut films even then Dario was still banging on about oh the censors treated me terribly in the UK you know and um, I think Two Evil Eyes is a film where he really went for it with the violence the other great mm-hmm. thing about the movie for me is Harvey Keitel I, I think he just gives a, a brilliant method performance as 
Rod Usher. Rod Usher, fantastic. The the the, the famous photographer, you know. And yeah, I, I, I love two evil eyes. But then as I say, we've we've got trauma. Later on we've got um the two episodes that Dario did for the Masters of Horror TV series, where again I think the idea of Mick Garris's TV show in two thousand and five was that we're gonna hire the world's best horror directors and we're gonna let them loose. And Dario, with the episodes Jennifer and Pelts, took that on board better than anybody, I think. I'm not saying he made the best episodes of that series, but I think you've got absolutely unfettered Argento. I mean, in, is that, in is that a shows. case? I mean, look, cause I, cause I watched, watched those two and I watched um, the Do You Like Hitchcock TV thing as well. Yeah. Do we think that maybe at this period of his career, mid-2000s onwards, he should have been actively looking to maybe move to TV where maybe the budgets were a little bit higher than he could get to do a feature film, do 40 minutes of it. I, I suppose this stems back. We, we really here now need to link this into what we were going to talk about earlier. And, John, you seem to know more about this than, than we do. The, um, the, the, the way in which the Italian commercial film industry sort of um, evaporated around about 1990 and shifted over to TV. And if you can sort of take us through that and then lead on to the era that Adam's talking about here around 2005, 2006? Well, I think it started happening in the early... There was the video nasties and the cannibals and the zombies in the early 80s, and then they got onto the post-apocalyptic stuff, which was the final Fiona, really. When Argento did his own Hitchcock-like TV series in the early 70s... Door into Dark. Yes, which established again the the cult of Dario Argento. The brand, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It played on Rai Uno, and at the time there was only uh, Rai Due, Rai 2, and that could only be seen by 50% of the Italian population. So essentially, when that was broadcast, if you went home, you were probably watching Dario Argento yeah. on TV. Um, so we had the run of it there. But then later on, there's this multiplicity of Italian TV with game shows and stripping housewives and tutti frutti and all sorts of craziness. And Dario himself got into it. They had a... He had various attempts, again, to make a successful TV show of little chamber, little pocket jolly episodes. And yeah, there was a... Asked to guess the killer yeah, and all it that. Was a, it was a, TV, a true crime show called uh, Jarlo, yes. strangely enough, which yes. was... Um, yeah, so it was part sort of Police 5, but mm-hmm. then five minutes of every show would be given over to Dario. And he'd make a little mini-movie <laughs> um, under the title, I've got it written down, Glee Incubi di Dario Argento. Yeah, the Nightmares of Dario yeah, Argento, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you can probably find these on YouTube somewhere. Yes. Little three or four minute mini Argento movies that hardly anyone's ever seen. So, but but as the TV thing took off and people were all staying in watching these beautiful Italian women taking their clothes off and stuff, they weren't going out to the cinema. Um, people like Lenzi, you know, all these old stages, Martino, even Fulci. Yes, they they really kind of suffered and and uh, the resources. Nobody wanted to give people money to make films that nobody was going to watch. So those guys really suffered and tailed off. Argento was able to parlay for longer than that his reputation and his industry connections to make films. But as I think we've suggested, uh, it was increasingly, you know, I would say after 87, it was with diminishing returns setting in. Um, and, you know, occasional, yeah, oh, that maybe still got it in him. That's promising. What's the next one going to be like? But 
no, no, no really sustained um, rise, no second wave in Argento's career, you know, to my way of thinking. But uh, as, as Adam says, um, Dario was um, still, still dabbling in TV by the time the film uh, Do You Like Hitchcock was made in 2005, because that was actually made as a, a TV production. I love the business model of the, uh, the video uh, library where they will only sell and hire films that were made by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> no, no wonder it goes out yes. of business. Spoiler. It's... Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the whole, the whole plot actually hinges, or a big yeah. part of the plot hinges on this video store going Dra- out d- of business. Try selling that to Dragon's Den. Yeah. Indeed, yeah, yeah. And it all, it all links back in with the fact that um, the script keeps homaging Hitchcock movies and there's a suggestion that they never quite follow through. The movie might have been better if they had, that the events and the crimes and the murders are all being perpetrated because of the influence of Hitchcock's movies, they're being sort of copied from Hitchcock films. That never quite gets off the ground mm. with that, but uh, I think there's enough Hitchcock in there to sort of justify the title. But yeah, weird, weird setup where you've got this video store and all of the customers are about 18, 19, 20 years old and they all adore Strangers on a Train. They and, and, yeah, yeah. 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 and they're actually fighting over copies of it in the shop, you know. Yeah. It's a dream. It's a dream world. <laughs> So, yeah, we've, we've got um, into the 21st century then. We've mentioned already um, Nonho Sono, Do You Like Hitchcock, The, the Three Mothers. But um, uh, we, we, need, we need to talk, I think, about uh, the rather extraordinary in its own way, Jarlo. Uh, Again, the, this, this was almost the perfect title for Argento. When, when it was announced in the press that Dario Argento's making a new movie and it's called Jarlo. The, the waves of excitement amongst the fans. And again, they, the, this was never, ever going to hold up and justify that wave of excitement. And as we know, it didn't. And in tandem with that, I think if we discuss that and we can discuss what to date has been Dario's last feature, a 3D version of Dracula. Well, I, I, saw, I saw the I was at the world premiere of Jello in Edinburgh. And... For my mind, as I watched it, I thought it was a comedy. I literally thought it was a comedy. And not just because it was funny, because it is funny, but it's called Jallo. So, so my mind was like, well, what has Dario Argento left to say about the Jallo genre? Yeah, Nothing. Yeah. He's, he's, he, he, he perfected it in 1975 with, with Rufundo or so. <laughs> he's done three, a, a trilogy in there. He's done opera, he's done tenebrae, he's done all these... He's got nothing left to say. So the only thing left to say is to poke fun at it and make it as a comedy. So I was convinced, I was absolutely convinced for months afterwards that this was a comedy. And it's only when the reviews started coming in after, after the initial thing that people were saying, this is dreadful, this is dreadful. It's almost unintentionably funny. I'm like, I, I, I'm still... Part of me still convinced it was a comedy, and it's, it's a theory. It's a theory that I think holds water. I think I think Adrian Brody thinks it's a comedy. Yeah, I think yeah. he's playing it for laughs in yeah. that movie. How how much can we talk about Brody's participation in this? The the thing the thing to mention first of all is that he he sued the production and stopped the movie from getting widely shown because he never got paid for it, yeah. which is which is a sort of standard story in Italian exploitation. But, yeah. uh, you know, we, we know plenty of other actors that have been there. But, yeah, he actually put an injunction out on the film, <laughs> stopped it coming out on DVD for a while because he'd not been paid. And I think a lot of people who worked in Italian films just gave up the ghost and said, oh, they're not paying me. 
forget it. You know, he being Adrian Brody, being a, a name, you know, he, he said they're not treating me he like this. He went for it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an interesting one though for, for Adrian Brody because it kind of feels like it's the start of his turn towards a Nicolas Cage style career <laughs> um, where you're not, never quite, quite sure what you're yeah, going to get with Adrian Brody. Not quite a decline, but, but... No, it's uh, not a decline, yeah, it's a yeah. different path. Coming coming more towards <laughs> working his way towards us, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like... Uh, but just his, his film choices started to become erratic, I would say, <laughs> in, in, in a Nicolas Cage kind of way. And he wasn't going to sure. win many more Oscars, yeah. No, yeah, he, yeah exactly. He, wasn't, he felt like, I've won my Oscar, I'm moving on. Same as Nicolas Cage, I've won my Oscar, I'm, I'm going to do something <laughs> different. And this felt like part of that tapestry of roles that he was doing. And I'm not sure, I'm not, I, again, I'm, I think he's playing it for laughs. I think he's playing yeah. it as a comedy. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind that we're probably talking to a lot of people who haven't seen Jarlo... Do we talk too much about Brody, or, or should should we should we leave that open for people I, to discover? I would say see it if you can. Um, that I, the comedy theory is an interesting one. Thank you for that. I got my own pet theory on uh, Giallo. You sort of hear that Argento is making a film called Giallo. It's got to be some kind of definitive statement There's on the Giallo. There's certain expectations mm. yeah. there, yeah, and yeah. maybe some sort of autobiographical statement. And then you notice that it, he, it was directed as a gun for hire thing wasn't it he didn't write it yeah saying oh it's not his statement then it can't be his statement it can't be autobiographical but then when i watched it and certainly if you read and i you know to me it's one of the more interesting things with cross currents going on in it if you read um argento's autobiography published by in the uk by fab press and i would recommend that people do so i enjoyed that book a lot more than i thought i would he talks about being, you know, not the most conventional-looking chap and being an outsider and being made to suffer for it in his life. And then what's Jarlo about? It's about an outsider, a mocked figure, who's not conventionally good-looking. Again, it's, and... al- it's almost a fairy tale, a, a goblin <laughs> Well, yeah, there's that yeah, as well. Yeah, but yeah. it's about the pleasure that guy takes from dismembering beautiful people. And that makes me think, ah, because you've been doing that throughout your career, yeah. Dario. So I think despite everything, I think it emerges as some kind of skewed, odd, autobiographical definitive statement. As a third take, I, I, I think I've, I've, I've just mentioned it briefly already, sort of intruding on, on, uh, on your assessment there, John, is that um, the central figure is almost... He's, he's a huge hulking character, but he's almost like a giant goblin, you know. He's almost like sort of a troll-like figure. Shrek. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so is is this Dario's last great fairy tale as well? Uh-huh. So, so is it a comedy? Is it an autobiography? Is it a fairy story? It's probably none of those things. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess all of them and more. Um, to um, to conclude, we've we've got to talk about Dracula. 3D, yeah, I, think, I, I watched this yesterday, and I need to get this off my chest. <laughs> oh. God, Dario. I mean, I, I put it to you like now. It's like, has a filmmaker ever gone from the heights of Suspiria and Inferno to the depths of what Dracula 3D was? Uh, because I, I, thought it was, I thought it was utterly dreadful. And, and beyond, beyond Dario Argento just being, being a Dario Argento film, it's bad if, regardless of whether you're comparing it with Suspiria. If you compare it to a film that came out the same year... It's terrible. And I hate, I absolutely hate slagging off movies and running them down, but this movie is just really not worth your time. Yeah. That's I'm, my, that's I'm, my I'm gonna I'm gonna defend it. I think see, <laughs> well, see of course you are. It wouldn't be much it, of a podcast, um, would it? No. See yeah. it in three D if you can. Um, because the the compositions 
and um, certain shots in the movie and so certain static tableau in the movie are brilliantly designed for 3D and they probably don't work very well if you watch the film flat. That's a real high point for me is the visuals in the movie. I think he's done it better in Dracula than he has done for years and years and years. Thomas Kretschmann plays Dracula and interestingly played Van Helsing about 12 months later in a Sky TV series called Dracula. You may remember with the Jonathan Rhys Mayers as, as the Count. So here we've got Rutger Hauer as Van Helsing and Kretschmann as Dracula. And I, I think they're both great. I think Kretschmann is a little bit of a, um, a, a bland Dracula, but I think he, he he works that to the advantage of the character. He's very quietly spoken. I think you really do get the sense from him of um, both a sort of youthfulness and and an eternal life. I, I think within within his face and within his demeanour and within the whole way he holds himself and the way that he plays the role, he he reaches this thing that all actors actors playing that part need to reach, which is a sense of vitality and a sense that he's always been here and always will be. And the third thing that I would say in favour of the film is um, the use of CGI, which I think we, we all loathe in modern cinema, mm. is exceptionally well done. I think Dario and his technicians use it very well. I'm going to add a fourth thing to my three now. Arzia Argento, we've talked about her already. She plays a Lucy Westenra in in, uh, in this adaptation, which isn't particularly faithful to Stoker, we've got to say. I John's giving a thumbs down here. I, I rather like Arzia in this. It's, it's not a great performance, but I think what she does well is she plays Lucy as a living character and Lucy as a dying or dead character in very, very distinct ways. She, she makes an effort to make those into distinct characters, almost like a Jekyll and Hyde. And I think that's laudable. Whether, whether she quite pulls it off or not is another matter. But I think the attempt is something that, that ought to be praised. So uh, I, I'm, I'm sensing I'm on my own in praising the film. It's not all great, so the movie does have its flaws and its pitfalls, but I'm, I'm sticking a thumb up for Dracula in 3D. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say too much about it because I think we should finish on a positive note, if that's all, indeed what we're coming to. You know, I watched the movie. Yeah, OK, I'm not going to watch it again. I, I hate it. I, 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 I don't have any sort of like qualms about ending the podcast on a bad note. So it, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. And I think all the points that you make, Daryl, I would absolutely disagree with probably all of them. I think the <laughs> not, C- not for the first time. Well, no, I, I yeah, thought the CGI yeah. was dreadful. It was like it was it was annoying, and it was like constantly there. It was blatantly shot on sort of like green screen sets and cheap sort of like green scenes there. I know the film's set in like Transylvania, but it feels like it was shot in Budapest. You know, <laughs> it feels like it was like one of those movies where the first two were shot in Italy and Rome, and it's always oh, beautiful vistas, and then suddenly he's making it. In, in, in Bulgaria on a third of the budget with a cast of nobodies. Um, I, I, I'm really disappointed with it. I was really disappointed with it. And, yeah, I, I, yeah I'm never going to watch it again. OK. I, I, had think... to, I had to watch Rufundo Rosso just to wash, wash <laughs> it out of my brain. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think to end on a positive note then, <laughs> or certainly for our, our listeners, is I suspect we've probably got a lot of newcomers to Argento who might be listening. You know, what, what's the not what's not necessarily your your personal favourite Argento film, but 
which film would you recommend to, 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 to watch as an Argento starting point? I, I would say personally, go right from the start and go with Bird with the Crystal Plumage and work your way through. Over to you guys. Well, I think one of the, one of the, one of the plus points of things, if you are looking to get into Dario Argento's work and you start off with the best films... It's going to take you years before you get to Dracula. <laughs> so you're all right, because the man's made... Absolutely, we've talked about maybe four, four masterpieces in his career, and there's at least four or five ones that are near masterpieces. So you, there's a lot in this man's career that you are going to thoroughly enjoy and be astounded by. And films that change the genre uh, and certainly change the, the industry, the horror industry, definitely. Um, for me, it's Profundo Rosso. Uh, it kind of brings together those three, uh, the, the Jello movies that he started his career with, hones that, but also has that one foot in the more fantastical, supernatural area that he would go into with Suspiria. I think going deep in with Straight in with Suspiria might be a bit much, but I think, I think Profundo Rosso is just such a man, and um, benefits from repeat viewings as well. Let's do the gracious thing and give the last word yes, to absolutely. our special guest, Mr. Martin. Both um, of the sort of roots you outlined have their merits and uh, both of them result in you watching uh, Dracula in 3D last <laughs> um, so, yeah you might want to watch Suspiria and just know that you know this is a serious uh, filmmaker that has to be reckoned with uh, I think there's something to be said for if you take our word for it that he's a serious filmmaker with a serious body of work go back to the beginning and, and take it from there so I would tend to uh, go with that one now so yeah, Dario Argento. Absolutely. Thank you very much, John, for joining us for this wonderful episode of discussing Dario's Thank work. You. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you guys. I'd love to do it again. Uh, if you don't hear me again on this podcast, you'll know it's not because I didn't want to be on it. It's because these two said, we're not having that jerk on again. <laughs> <laughs> We've trapped him in our basement to do it, <laughs> doing Jallo-like things to him. Yeah, we'll bring him out every time we talk in Italian horror, so that's no problem. <laughs> cool, yes, thank you very much for listening. Uh, again, once again, I want to thank uh, Quad and the BFI for helping support these podcasts. Uh, there will be more information on further reading, because we've mentioned a lot of films today. Uh, there will be more further reading on our website, so please check out the supporting materials, and we will see you again in a few weeks' time. Take care. Sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs>